0: Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed the one, the only Robert Greene, our favorite author and the man.
1: He's back since uh, February 2019, which he remembered fondly, and he's back for round two, (laughs) almost three years later. His brand new book, The Daily Laws, which captures really the best bits of all of his books, uh, power, seduction,
0: strategies of war, uh, laws of human nature. Fantastic. Fantastic. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, he needs no further introduction. So let's get into it, Mister Robert Green. Thanks so much, Robert Green, for your time today. We're so excited. Uh, we're just telling you how you're our number one author. We've read over three hundred books, and you know three of yours are in our top ten. And Laws of Human Nature is our number one. So uh-huh. absolutely stoked. And I'd, if I just say the one effect we've had, sort of represented at the start of your book, your new book, The Daily Laws, and you say, consider The Daily Laws as a kind of, and I'll butcher this word, but bil- <laughs> Bildungsroman. These stories, the protagonists are quite young. with wasn't bad. Naive notions. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> better unusual. <laughs> slowly, the author uh, lets the reader shed themselves and their various illusions and the real world educates them and you emerge enlightened, battle-tested, and wise beyond their years. When Quite consider ourselves enlightened yet, but we're on the way and definitely a lot less naive. So, uh, have you? Is this been one of your goals as a writer to just sort of bring a sense of reality and, and to all the the readers that you you write for?
2: I think so. You know, I can largely base it on my own experience. Um, when I emerged from university, like a lot of young people, I was full of all kinds of notions, ideals, etc. And then you enter the work world, and you see that it's not what you expected. It's completely different. Nobody kind of helps guide you to what you're going to be encountering. You know, your parents don't teach you about the political games going on. university certainly doesn't. And then suddenly you're confronted with the reality, and it can be very brutal. And um, excuse me one second. I'm just getting my tea here. (laughs) Thank you. Um, so, you know, and so the, that's been always the, the impetus behind my book. So the 48 Laws of Power, you know, I kind of entered Hollywood in the early, late 80s, once again, filled with all these illusions about, you know, the film business and the creativity involved in writing screenplays. And then soon enough, I had to confront the fact that it was really just about power It really wasn't about creating films that people were obsessed with power. And nobody kind of writes about this. It's sort of like our dirty little secret. It's our dirty little laundry that no one wants to reveal. And so I wanted to write a book beginning with the 48 Laws of Power that kind of stripped away the curtain and showed you what's really going on behind closed doors in the halls of power, what really motivates people, kind of what's going on behind the mask that people tend to wear so that you'll be armed with knowledge about what's really going on in the world and not be filled with all these silly illusions like I had been filled with. And so it's sort of the theme running throughout all of my books. You know, the basic misunderstandings are not just about people, um, and because that's a lot of it in the political games, but it's also about ourselves. We're filled with a lot of illusions about who we are, about what we're supposed to be doing in life, about what's cool and what's not cool, et cetera, et cetera. And so, I want to kind of educate you in what I consider to be the the most powerful attitude you can have towards life—to be able to see through all the bullshit that's in our culture, that's on social media, that we kind of swallow, absorb from our parents, from our teachers, etc., and give you kind of, um, you know, kind of dip you into reality, giving you a straight shot of it, so that you won't make the kind of the classic mistakes that I have made in my my early years.
1: I saw a great um I saw a great video that you put up just saying that when you're coming up through the ranks, connections, money, they're not really that important. It's all about your attitude and for you the attitude was as you say, seeing through the bullshit, seeing things as they really are hyper-reality, not as you wanted them to be, not as you wish that they could be. How did you start to see through the bullshit? It's, it's pretty easy to not see through the bullshit. It's pretty easy to just keep looking at the, at the nice, fluffy way you wish the world could be. How did you start to cut through that and, and look well, at the real world?
2: Part of it's my own nature, my own proclivity since I was a child. I've always been kind of an observer of people. I never took their words for reality. So when people said that this was what their intentions were, blah, 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 I always like to analyze what I thought was really going on. I didn't listen to what people said, right? Um, but then the real kind of inspiration for it, what really educated me were the mistakes that I made. So for And they're very painful mistakes. And so when you go through these kind of painful mistakes, you can do one of two things. You can either get all angry and blame other people and say, it's this person's fault they did this to me and sort of assume that you're the victim. Or you can try the opposite tack, which is maybe I'm partially to blame for it. Maybe I did something wrong. Maybe there's something in me that is causing these things to happen. So when I was, I can't remember how old I was, It's late 20s, let's say. I was working at a job in, in television business and the job was to find stories that would eventually be put on television. It was kind of a documentary style. And I was by far the best researcher there. I had, if the percentages were there, like 60, 70% of the stories that were filmed were my own, even though we had a team of like 10 people. So I was producing at an incredible rate. But the, my boss was really, really unhappy with what I was doing. And she was kind of torturing me about it, as if I, something was wrong with me. You know, but I was producing, so I didn't understand. And then basically it came out that she thought I had a bad attitude. And I didn't really have a bad attitude, but she was kind of making me have a bad attitude. And then eventually I quit. I was probably going to be fired soon. And it was kind of irritating to think about. But then as time passed, I thought about it deeply. And I decided that I had outshone the master. Law number one, never outshine the master that in trying so hard and trying to prove that I was the best person there, I was kind of tripping on her ego and making her feel a little bit insecure that maybe I thought I was better than she was. And so afterwards, you know, it was very kind of, why would I be fired or, or you know, be be in the, in the shithole when I was the person producing the most, the best work. And, you know, it was like a, a riddle. It didn't make sense. And so then I eventually figured it out. So, Through the kind of negative experiences I've had, and there are many others because I've had many different jobs, I kind of go through a process of self-analysis, right? I step back and I go, maybe it was my fault in this case. Maybe I did have an attitude. Maybe I did think I was better than she was, and maybe it showed up. Maybe I could have played the game a little bit differently. And that's sort of the beginning of kind of crafting what I call a realistic attitude.
1: Mm.
0: I guess with that that outshine the master, it's something that well you've obviously had a powerful experience with it. Asha and myself have had different experience with it. Uh, what sort of people who say if their managers are not insecure? Because I feel like sometimes you know we might catch ourselves always trying to not outshine the master, but you know sometimes the manager might want the best for you and actually want you to try and shine. So you know how do you un- how do you know if someone's secure enough for for you to actually shine as bright as you possibly can, for lack of a better, better phrase. Well,
2: you can, get, you can get a sense of people very early on, very quickly. We, we're, we're not bad at this kind of game. You get a sense that you're dealing with someone who's very insecure. They won't show it right away. And the problem that we have is we naturally assume that a person in power, someone who's reached the top of the profession or whatever it is, that they're, they feel very confident and secure. We assume that. But the truth is that the higher up you rise in life, the more insecure you tend to become. You've got more at stake. You've got a reputation to hold. You're constantly wondering, do people like me? Is my performance as good as it was five years ago? So you have to begin with the assumption that the people above you are more insecure than you think they are. All right. And if, you know... Yes, you want to impress them. Yes, you want to show yourself in the right light. But realize that even the best manager, even the one who seems to want to, you know, for you to perform, still has insecurities, still has an ego, and you have to be careful, right? So you kind of scope it out in the beginning. First of all, I always tell people, when you go into an office or you go into a new job, Get a feeling of the temperature of the office and the people who work around that particular person. Is everybody kind of tense and nervous? Are they very careful about what they say? Are they walking around kind of like frightened little mice in the hallway, terrified of, you know, you're getting a good sense that this is a boss who's kind of very insecure and has to kind of intimidate people. Or you enter an office. And people are kind of smiling and open and they don't they feel free to say whatever they want, etc. It's probably a case where you can relax and, and be a little bit more yourself. So I talk in the laws of human nature in my other books that every place you enter has a culture, right? When you put people together, they create their own kind of culture, their own kind of political mood. You have to become a master observer of the group dynamic, right? and you get a feel for it by looking at how people are responding how they how freely they talk how they how, how much they feel open to kind of express themselves you need to be able to fit in so if it's a really tight kind of closed you know stick up the butt kind of atmosphere you better be a little bit cautious in the, particularly in the beginning but if it's the opposite you know like i went i gave a talk at google and i walk in there and it's like it's like a child's playground, you know? There's, like, toys everywhere. There's all these games. There's ping-pong tables. People are laughing, et cetera, et cetera. Then I go to Microsoft. This was before I went to Google, but Microsoft, it was the exact opposite. Everyone was so – it was like Soviet Union in the 60s or something. So you get a feel for the place, and that will kind of tell you whether you have a little more license to do some shining or not.
0: Yeah, there's so much in that – one one of the things you say in mastery is that uh, if we're trying to reach mastery, the only way to fast track development can be, you know, through finding a mentor. Um, for a lot of people out there, you know, they might not have the such a high status that the quality of mentors that they can attract, you know, will be anything close to what you might get, say, through books and um, and you know, different authors around the world like yourself. So, uh, how can people get? most out of, say, the mentorship through books, if that's their way of getting their mentorship?
2: Well, the first thing I would say is you have a better chance of finding a mentor than you think you do, a real-life flesh-and-blood mentor. But the thing is you have to be able to offer something to them, right? So maybe if there's somebody on your radar that you would like or a couple of people that you'd like to be have as, as a mentor, maybe prepare yourself – and realize the thing that people need the most is to save them time, they need organization. You're probably obviously gonna be younger than the person who's your mentor. You obviously can know more about the internet, about social media than they are. You have things to offer. So maybe hone those skills and prepare a little bit, but always keep in mind that you have a better chance than you imagine. Because in the world today, people like myself, we're working so hard we're so have so many obligations. We're much busier than we ever were before. And someone who's young and fresh, who's in their early twenties, who comes around, who's enthusiastic, who has knowledge of the internet that I don't have, who can organize my life—I'm going to be much more open than you might think to having them. But then, to get to your point, um, you need to—it's it, like the voice of the writer becomes kind of your mentor, right? So in, in 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 a real life situation you're kind of picking up you're kind of reading between the lines you're picking up the energy of that person right and you're listening very attentively to what they have to say and so if it, the problem with a book is inevitably you're not going to agree with everything and it's not going to exactly fit your circumstances right so the 48 laws of power if that just to choose my own book I'm being narcissistic here, but if it's the 48 laws of power, obviously Obviously not all the laws are going to apply. You're not probably crush your enemy totally isn't something that's really relevant to your personal life. Although it might be, I don't know, maybe in Australia it is, but, um, so you've got to kind of figure out what is really relevant to your life, right? And not take everything seriously. You know, not be trying to figure out how can I use Crush My Enemy Totally when the place that I'm working in, where it's not relevant. So don't be so respectful of the book that you're like, you know, following every little word to the letter. Pick and choose the aspects that fit where you are right now in life. And then constantly realize that your life is changing and that you need to find books that are kind of fit where you are in that particular moment. Right. So I, I think it's much better personally to try and find a real flesh and blood mentor. I understand that that's not possible. I didn't really I mean, I learned a lot of things from certain books, you know, like Machiavelli. Right. He kind of schooled me in how to have a realistic attitude towards life, to look at what people not what people say, but at their actions kind of thing. But I didn't follow everything in the prints, you know, I'm not Cesare Borgia, I'm not cutting people's heads off. So I saw clearly, (laughs) as a young man in Los Angeles, California, this bit of advice hit me very close, you know, about looking at people's actions, not their words. So you've got to kind of have some focus on what is something applicable to what you're where you are and what isn't.
1: Nice. You had a uh, you jumped around a lot. I think you've—I've heard you've had sixty-plus different jobs throughout your life, at all different status and seniority levels, all different industries. Yeah. And I think you said it, it was—it wasn't until about age thirty-six, thirty-seven, thirty-eight where you first started to feel like you actually achieved some kind of success. Yeah. Did uh, did you feel like that was inevitable? Did you ever give up hope? How long were you kind of pursuing something? you know, for yourself as opposed to working for somebody else? What was the, uh, how was that journey for, for 60 different jobs over 37 odd years?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, I, I never in my life did I hold a job more than 11 months. And usually they were often quite a bit shorter than that. Um, well, yeah, they were. to be honest with you, it's hard to know in the present what your state of mind was because, you know, we're talking 30 years ago now at least 30 years ago. But I can remember that I was—I had an up and down kind of mental life. There were times where I thought, I'm a writer, I have some skill. I've had all this experience, I have this knowledge. I know I'm meant to accomplish something in this world. So don't give up hope, I would be telling myself. Keep trying. But then there would be obviously moments where I'd get extremely depressed. And I can even say some moments I maybe even felt Faintly suicidal. Things weren't clicking. I felt like I deserved to be able to get somewhere, but I just didn't know how. I couldn't figure out, I couldn't solve that riddle of what exactly I was meant to accomplish. I tried journalism when we're talking about writing. That didn't seem like a good enough fit. I tried writing novels. I guess maybe I was too young or I wasn't disciplined enough. That wasn't working out. I tried writing for the theater. I tried writing screenplays. I didn't like the fact that I had no power in writing a screenplay. It also wasn't a process that I enjoyed. What is it, you know? So at, at the very bottom, when you reach that bottom, when you feel really low, sometimes you can sink even deeper. And when you sink even deeper, you kind of give up and you go, damn it. I just got to go to law school or business school, or I got to start working at a restaurant. This isn't going to work out. But I had a a a floor that wouldn't let, or something—I don't know what the metaphor is—that wouldn't let me sink further down. And basically, it was—I knew that there was something in me that that I had something that it was meant that was could come together in some way. So I, even when I got low, 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 I would kind of bounce back up because I had this kind of genuine faith in myself. And a lot of people, they don't necessarily have that. And I understand and I feel very bad because it's easy to give up. That's the easiest route to take. And I probably was at certain moments, I've kind of, you know, um, flirted with that. But mastery is where I really address that issue. So if you're clear in your 20s, particularly, of what you were meant to do in life, what I call your life's task you know, your destiny, like I'm meant to be an entrepreneur. I'm meant to be a writer. I'm meant to be an athlete. I'm meant to have the best podcast in Australia that ever existed, whatever it is. You've got a frame of reference. You're not lost, right? You know, this is what you were destined to do. And then you try different things and you explore and you figure out, I like this. I don't like that. But when you have that kind of sense of I am destined to create something. I'm unique. There's something special about me and each person has that. If you can figure out, as I call it, the solve that riddle, then you'll have that kind of ground that you won't sink below and it'll kind of keep you trudging even though things aren't necessarily going so well in the present.
0: Mm. You mentioned how you've, you almost had that moment. You're like, fuck it. I'm going to go and do law or fuck it. I'm going to go and work yeah. at a restaurant. I mean, everyone's probably had those temptations. What are these forces sort of, you know, pulling at us in that direction so if we can better understand it, then maybe we don't, you know, succumb to that temptation? Well, the
2: most obvious force is to survive, to eat, to be able to pay your rent, to be able to pay your bills, you know. That was staring me in the face. And um, so you have to, you know, everyone's going to be facing that at, at some point, and I understand. You can't, like, go through life saying, I want to be a poet and think that you're going to make a living writing poetry because it's just unrealistic. You've got to find another way of doing it. So it's a mix of being practical and then being having some sort of ideals about who you are. If you're too realistic, then you won't have the energy and the drive to kind of keep pushing yourself forward. But if you're too full of these romantic notions of what you'll want in life, you'll never be practical enough to make it happen in the moment, Right. So it's kind of a a balancing act between those two things, you know, and I had a, I had my own way of doing it, which I don't know if I don't say is necessarily the best. It was my way, which was here in Los Angeles. I kind of realized Hollywood is not for me. I don't like it, but there was money to be had in freelance jobs. I could work three months working on a film. I would make good money for myself And then I would quit the job and I would spend six months writing. And then my bank account would reach like $10 and, uh uh-oh, I'm not going to be able to eat. All right, then I'd get another horrible soul-sucking job that would pay my bills for another three months. So I could keep, of course, if I kept on doing that into my 50s, that wouldn't work. That would be, you know, I, I wouldn't have the energy or the drive. But for a period of time, so what happens to a lot of people is, They give up and they go for that big paycheck. They go, I can't handle this anymore. I I wanted to be an artist or whatever it is. I can't handle the grind. I'm just going to go to law school. I'm going to go to business school. I'm going to get the big paycheck. And I understand that that's very human. I don't necessarily denigrate that at all. The problem is, is that it's not really you. It's not really something that excites you. It's not something that you're emotionally connected to. Yes, it will pay for your bills, but paying your bills is not everything in life. You also have to feed your soul. You also have to feel excited by what you're doing. Otherwise, you're in a trajectory, excuse me, <clears throat> you're in a trajectory by the time you're in your 40s we you're going to feel a little bit burned out and, and that soul-sucking nature of your job is going to start really weighing on you and you'll find yourself, you know, going into drugs and alcohol and, and kind of behavior patterns to kind of help, you know, deal with the, the fact that you're not living up to your youthful expectations. So, you know, you have to you have to realize that it's important to have a paycheck. It's important to pay your bills. But there's always ways in this world to do that and kind of, a, and still keep your other dreams alive. So you could go get that job that you really hate but you can also be going to night school and taking other classes and things that will eventually in a year allow you to quit and go more in the direction that you want right so just realize that that it's important to be practical it's important to have food on the table but if you give up everything for that then you're going to eventually you're going to pay a price for it i think
0: mm. on that process of mastery um, on this topic, so that you know, you start off discovering your calling and cultivating a unique seed, and then an apprenticeship, and then um, creative active. Do you do you see this as something a dynamic thing that you actually you know do multiple times in your life this process, or is it something that you know you, you nail it once you got the one calling, and then you go through the process only once and that's about it? Well,
2: some people have have different trajectories. Um, you know, I've I've had people that I've encountered in life who kind of figured out their life's task in their 20s and went in a certain direction and then they they kind of have a restless nature and they figured I want more this I'm getting a little bored with this and then they would um figure out something else and they would try some other oh, damn, sorry um Siri sometimes interrupts me here <laughs> um, oh, and here she is again. Go away, That's serious God, You said, you said oh. her name now. You've um, to- <laughs> oh, I, I mentioned her name. She <laughs> anyway. Um, so, <laughs> so sometimes, yeah. If you're, a, you, you have to know yourself. That's the most important thing in life. That's what's inscribed on the Greek temple at Delphi in ancient Greece. Know thyself. Knowing who you are is the most critical thing. So if you have that kind of restless nature where you love mastering a particular field and then it reaches a point where you're curious and you want to do something else, then that's fine. But the main thing is to not be a dilettante, to not like try for a year or two to be a musician and give up and then, then go try and work on Wall Street for a year or two and then give up and then try and, you know, do something else. You're never going to master anything. So if you spend the eight years becoming a great writer, but you want something else in life. You want to do some science, all right? Now go master some field of science, and maybe eventually you'll combine your new knowledge of science with your writing, which will be even more brilliant, right? So, um, you know, but the thing is, you want to have some kind of direction, some kind of focus. Now your question is, does this process go on through your life? Yes it does but not in the same way. So you continually want to feel like you are an apprentice that you are learning, right? So the the idea of being excited and wanting to learn and wanting to develop new skills is to me the essence of of being a, a genius of being a true creative person, right? You don't settle what happens is as you get older, as you get into your 30s and 40s, your ideas start to harden. They start to freeze up. You, think, you tell yourself, I know all the answers. I'm so brilliant. I figured it all out. I don't need to learn anything else. You're not maybe telling yourself that, but unconsciously, that's how you're feeling. And you get more and more closed to anything new or different in your life, right? And you stop learning. And then eventually, your work kind of reflects that. It kind of becomes lifeless. Right? So, you want to feel like you're a child, continually putting yourself back in the position of a child. You're curious, you're excited, you need to learn more, you need to go through the kind of a a sped up apprenticeship process again, where you're observing and learning and developing new skills. It's not the same if I now wanted to learn or, or go in a different direction. It's not the same as when I was in my 20s, where I'd spent eight years, right, doing something and then dropping. So, you know, you, I I still, each time I write a book for me personally, I make the subject different so that I have to go through a kind of an apprenticeship in the new subject that I'm dealing with. So I challenge myself so I never get bored or feel like I'm in a rut, you know, but that's kind of, that's kind of how you have to approach life. You have to know yourself and whether you are one of those restless spirits or whether you feel comfortable. If you're somebody who's comfortable who wants to master music or chess just know that you have to continually find new challenges in your life or it's going to become stale in some way.
1: It's incredible incredible advice. Um, talk, let's jump over to the, the Daily Laws, the brand new book, which yeah. is kind of like the best of Robert Greene. Human nature, power, seduction, war, mastery, all rolled into one. How did you go about breaking down all of that stuff into you know, 12 monthly uh, you know, actions plus then the 366 daily tasks. It would have been a, it would have been a lot to try to to get into yeah. the perfect sort of t- annual sort of training for the whole year.
2: Well, I had I had somebody help me. Obviously, I didn't do it all myself. But basically, we would look for the passages that seemed the most kind of the strongest that seemed that seemed to be you know to have the most kind of and that i know that readers really responded to right so you know and and also kind of summarized an idea in in the most powerful way so if you begin with the with the idea which the which was the germ for this book that i want people to slowly absorb my way of thinking on a day-by-day basis, you know, kind of that realistic attitude I was talking about where you're able to look at yourself in a realistic way, you're able to look at people in a realistic way, you're able to look at the world and the trends going on in 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 that realistic vein. If that's the starting point, then I have to choose passages from my books that kind of exemplify that, that hit the hardest in each of those different areas, right? So for instance, I have that idea of alive time versus dead time, that Ryan Holiday, my former mentor mentee, um, really liked, and I knew a lot of people talk about that. They're really excited about it. It's kind of an interesting idea. All right, that's obviously going to be a passage, All right? Now I have to find 365 more of those. <laughs> so it was a bit arduous, and then it had to have a structure. You know, it can't just be a mishmash of the of, of, you know those kind of greatest hits because it'll be incoherent, it won't mean anything. So there had to be a structure to it, and I decided the beginning of the year should be about mastery, about figuring out your career, because it's often the time where the new year is there and we're kind of reassessing our life, you know, the cliche of new year, new you, and you're kind of wondering whether, whether I'm in, going in the right direction. So it seemed like that was the best place to kind of Touch upon life's task and mastery. And then it kind of just sort of fell into place where then then I examined power and manipulation and dealing with toxic people, sort of like you you figured out what you're meant to do. Now you're going into a job, you have to deal with all these awful people somehow. So that was sort of the next through line, the next three months. And then the following three months were about Persuasion and Influence and Seduction, which is a key theme in all of my books, and Strategizing. And then finally, the summation of it all was Human Nature, and Knowing People, and Knowing Their Psychology on a Higher Level, kind of ending with my new book, The Sublime, in the month of December. So it kind of had a a narrative flow. It's It's not too tight, because if it was so tight, I think it would be kind of irritating. So it's sort of loose in the sense of the month is about this, but it kind of floats among different themes and it comes at you in different angles. Um, you know, I don't know if it succeeded or not because the success will depend on how the readers respond to it, quite frankly. It was harder because my other books, I'm able to control very in a very forceful way how things kind of play out, the logic behind it. I'm very keyed in on exactly how the reader is going to follow the you know, the, the 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 way the chapters flow. This book I didn't have that option. So it was a little bit of a new process for me. But that was sort of how I went about it.
0: Through uh through a lot of your books, like Seduction and and power and strategy and everything and, um there's a lot of ideas in there that can be applied to launching a product and the marketing process. What what ones are your go to when you're launching a new product that um, you know, is your mantra for, for getting certain things right um, to make the a, a product a success?
2: Well, um, you have to kind of be able to get outside of yourself. So what happens is if it's a product or a book or whatever it is you're producing, you tend to be locked inside your brain. You have this idea and you either overestimate or underestimate. Usually you overestimate. You think it's brilliant. You think you know how to do it, Right. And then it goes out in the world, and people don't respond to the way you think they should respond, and that is because they're different people than you. They have their own psychology. They have their own experience. They didn't grow up where you grew up. They don't have your parents. They're different. So the number one thing is to know your audience, to know who you're communicating to, to have some kind of access in whatever form that is to what their tastes are, their drives, and to get feedback before you launch this product from friends, from people you trust, from, a, from an outside perspective to say, this is what's good about your product. This is what sucks about it. You know, and, and because you don't have any perspective on it. Now, over time, you kind of develop the ability to look at your own work as if you're looking at it from an outside perspective. That's sometimes a little bit hard to do. But the closer you move to your audience... To what they want to what excites them the more power your your launch is going to have right and so part of that is to have a feel for what's going on in the world what i call the zeitgeist the spirit of the times i have a chapter in that on the laws of human nature so the to the degree that you have your finger on the pulse of what's going on in the world and you understand very deeply Not only that, but you can anticipate in three months or a year, this is where the world is headed. This is something that hasn't been tried before. This is a need that people have that hasn't been yet met yet. And I'm going to be the one through my new product, my new launch, that's going to feed this need. That'll have even more power and resonance with people. So being able to get outside of yourself and outside of your own ideas and delve into what's going on in the world and delve into how other people are thinking about it will is to be the most by far the most important initial step in the process
1: have you got a have you got a sense i know it's only a, a couple of weeks into the the book launch but have you got a sense as to what is resonating with people the most at the moment i know i was listening to a bunch of your recent interviews and it seemed like a lot of people were asking you about seduction i don't know if that was <laughs> just uh I don't know if that was just because they were the ones I listened to or if there's something in, you know, maybe the zeitgeist, maybe there's something in today's society where that's coming back into vogue. I don't know. I mean, um,
2: you know, the books of mine that are sell the most right now is is Power and the Laws of Human Nature and then Mastery would be in third place. Seduction is kind of like in fourth maybe behind that. It. So it's not my fastest-selling book. Um, but it is something, you know, We live in an era, I'm not in the dating age, I've been been in eminent relationship for quite a while now, but we live in an era of like Tinder, you know, dating apps kind of thing, where it's kind of impersonal. And the problem that people have nowadays is they spend so much time on their phones, right, that they've lost that sense of how to, to read people in the moment. They've lost the kind of physical aspect of being a human being. So when you're meeting someone for the first time in a bar, in a restaurant, wherever, or at a party, you're kind of looking in the eye, you're picking up their, the things that aren't expressed, their body language, etc. things that excite you, things that don't excite you, right? And these are skills that we all develop, right? The ability to sense people, to sense their energy, to sense their level of engagement with you, to whether there's a connection between you if all of our our dating and our meeting people is basically virtual you you might find somebody that connects to you but you're not developing that skill that is part of being a human being which is being able to pick up the moods of people so i can't read you got you both of you guys thoughts right now i'm not telepathic i hate to say it <laughs> but i can pick up your mood i can even do that right now it's harder on on, on virtually but i can kind of sense your mood what how how you're feeling in the moment because we have in our brains these, these mirror neurons i talk about that in mastery that allow us to put ourselves in the bodies of other people kind of feel how they are feeling and it's not as i said it's not the thoughts because that's impossible but we're emotional animals we pick up the energy that people have we can sense that they're depressed that they're stressed that they're open, they're relaxed. And so that's a skill you develop in in-person meetings. And it's a skill that's being degraded in our modern world because people spend so much damn time on their phones doing dating apps or whatever, and they're almost become afraid of the confrontation, of the flesh-to-flesh encounters. And so if you start becoming afraid, or unconsciously you think it's, you're not ready for it, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. You're going to feel more and more intimidated in those situations. So I think that's why people might be discussing seduction now that a lot of that. So the people who've interviewed me were saying, a lot of young men, if if that's their audience, are feeling very confused right now about issues about dating and, and young women and how to to, you know, how to, how to um, not pick them up, but, you know, how to, whatever, how to start a relationship, etc. And then the, the women interviewing will say they get a lot of that from their audience. It's just anecdotal. But what they're telling me is that a lot of their readers, their listeners, their audience is beginning to, to question themselves. Like there's a, they, they feel at sea. They don't really understand the process of what it is, how to appeal, how to get inside the psychology of the other person. They can click and they can swipe all day on their phones until they find someone who physically excites them and who has maybe some of the same interests as they do. But the, but the ability to feel what the other person is and to be able to have a conversation, you know, to have a real good conversation where you're able to connect, where you're able to listen, you're able to understand the people. People feel at law at sea in this. They're, they're, they're confused. They're losing these skills and I think that might be some of the impetus behind why people are talking to me about seduction.
0: Mm. I get the feeling uh, just hearing, you know, people in interviews as well or just the general, you know, culture and reaction to a lot of your work. I think I feel like a, a lot of people have a hard time with the, uh, you know, the fox character, the Machiavellian fox character, you know, we're using human nature for deception and whatnot Um I recently, read a book by Sam Harris. I mean, I couldn't articulate what that response is, but I feel like he kind of does. But he says, when in lying, there's acts of omission and acts of commission. So omission is where you don't say you lie, but you, you know, you're sort of decepting in a certain way. And He also says that lying is the royal road to chaos, and in committing to being honest to everyone, we're causing, um, we're solving things for the short term, but causing th- problems for the long term. Um. What's your your take on, I guess, the the argument against sort of the Fox character or those power games that we might play?
2: Well, we're talking in these generalities, and I really hate talking in generalities. So I'm not saying it's always wise to be lying in every situation. That's, that's pure stupidity on my part. I'm saying there are moments when you have to tell a white lie or even a greater lie. You know, I, I read somewhere recently where someone said, you believe that lying is always bad. Well, then you don't believe in etiquette because basic etiquette requires continual lying. You never tell <laughs> Ashton exactly how you feel about the clothes that he's wearing or about something he said that you think <laughs> was kind of stupid. You don't, you're never honest with him. You're always kind of coloring it in a way. That's real life. So get over these bullshit notions that we're always being honest. Because that's the fairy tale version we've been spoon-fed. That's when I talked about earlier on about all of these illusions that we enter life with. Children at the age of three are continually lying to their parents to manipulate them, right? They're crying when they don't really feel like they're sad because they Mm -hmm. want to get that present. They want to be able to go out and play on the street. They're manipulating their parents. To be a human is to be a born actor. We learn from very early on how to mold our face, our gestures, to get the response that we want from other people. And there's a brilliant American sociologist whose books I love called Irving Goffman. I can't remember the the title of his most famous book. But basically, he analyzed how in all social interactions, in virtually every realm, people are play-acting, right? They're listening to a script. They're kind of telling a story. They're not being truthful. Right. It's not like the kind of overt lie when President Trump says something that's obviously not true. And it's like a really ugly lie. You know, we can all see through it. These are shaded white lies, those kind of white lies that we tell in order to be socially accepted. You I don't care who the hell you are. I don't care what writer you are. You're doing that all the time, every day. Then there are the bigger lies. There's the more manipulative ones that I discuss in the 48 Laws of Power. Yes, sometimes that kind of overt manipulation will bite you in the butt, and you you have to be careful with them. But believe me, there are plenty of powerful people in this world who have lied, who've deceived, who've manipulated, who never once paid a price for it. So get over also this kind of fairy tale illusion that you will always pay a price for your lies, because that's not how it works in the world, right? Okay, so you have to have your own ethical compass in life. You can't get it from Sam Harris. You can't get it from Robert Greene. It has to come from you from within. I'm not comfortable with doing this. I'm not comfortable with saying. I'm not comfortable with being manipulative. I'm fine with that. I'm just telling you in my book, don't be naive, because there are other people out there who will be playing those games on you. And you may not want to play them yourself. I'm not someone who's comfortable overtly manipulating people it's not my nature but you don't want to be this the the naive little innocent lamb going through life being everyone is honest and truthful can we just be ourselves blah 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 and meanwhile all these people are playing games with you and you get a world of hurt you know you get a lot of pain in your life so i hate these kind of black and white right you know writers who say this about lying and deception because it's not the truth we live in a world that's not black and white. There's a lot of grays in between. There are moments where the white lie is the only thing you can do, and there are moments where being honest is the right method. So that's—I don't know if I'm answering your question, but that's sort of
0: my 100 percent. I think is. I must that admit, book I didn't—I
1: didn't understand that question at all. But that was a fantastic answer. Oh, it was a phenomenal <laughs> answer
0: because the book is black and white, right? It says it even has a go at white lies and tries to explain how white lies in any context is a bad thing so, so I think yeah that's exactly a great answer. Really? To... <laughs> I didn't it does Sam. yeah. That... I thought okay.
2: Wow. <laughs> it's a 40 okay. page book so
0: uh, it might be oh. worth having oh. a read and, oh. and then pull it is apart. It really? <laughs> no, is it really? It's a really short for... <laughs> book. Oh okay. Yeah there's a bit of a cash cow maybe. Um, is that Siri <laughs> in the background again? <laughs>
2: What's that? No, no, no! It's just my my landline. i on. It's just ignored. It's going to be. It's it's telemarketing here in the states.
1: Yeah, spam. Yeah. Um, um, it's we last um we last we last spoke to you in February 2019. Actually, when you just you did sort of you interviewed not, me back then. We did not long after the launch of uh, the laws of human nature. Not really? long after the bee sting and the God, stroke, I'm getting actually. old, man. Jesus. I can't believe it I don't well, remember since, that. Well wow. since since
2: that damn, makes me really feel like something's like pieces of my brain are falling out, but anyway. Oh
0: we're not we're not we're not, too, we're not that uh, memorable, yeah. We're not
2: that memorable. Oh yes you are, yes you are. I'm so I'm sorry about that anyway. Go ahead.
1: I uh, I was just gonna say, obviously like in those two and a half, almost three years since we last spoke, you've uh Gone through the the beasting, gone through a, a stroke, a global pandemic. Uh, you've launched the daily laws. You're working on the brand new book, uh, the sublime. How is has uh, the last couple of years been? And we're we're pretty curious about the the new book that's coming as well. I know we've only just got a brand new book from you, but we're yeah. also excited for the next one too. Well,
2: that's good to hear. Um, well, it's been a weird. You know, I actually before if we spoke in 2019, my stroke was in 2018. So, um, you know, it's. How, what can I say? It's It's been a wild ride. It's been up and down, a lot of pain, a lot of things that I wish I never had to deal with. But then there are people, obviously, with COVID, who've dealt with a lot worse than I am. I'm still alive. I still have most of my brain here. Um, but I lost, you know, the ability to walk really well. So I can't like go out my house and take a hike. And the things that gave me a lot of pleasure, my swimming, my hiking, my bicycling, that just suddenly been taken away from me and I still can't do them. So I've had to develop mental skills that I never had before. Patience that I never had before. Acceptance of myself that I never had before. And it's been tough. I don't want to gloss over and paint this picture of this person who's got it all together and it's figured it all out and is so insanely powerful because I've had some moments of, you know, what am, what's going on here? I, I can't deal with this. But I've been dealing with it and I'm getting better and I'm learning about my own limitations. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. Um, and that was insane here. You know, I mean, I don't, obviously in Australia, it was, you, you dealt with it in your own way. But, um, you know, it, it, I never, we none of us have ever been through anything like that, right? And the levels of fear that we had about going outside, I mean, we don't really experience that so much right now. But that weird first few mom- months, where we didn't really know what was going on, and we were washing our hands all the time, doing all these kind of weird things. You know, it kind of played a game on us, and it, it mentally, and it kind of, I don't know, it made us more fearful than we maybe necessarily had to be, although it really did have to be cautious. But we were operating in, a, in kind of sort of a lot of ignorance about what was going on. So that was a weird time. And, you know, obviously a lot of people, it was very, very, very painful. Um, it also taught us a lot. I think it taught me a lot about human nature and about how we react to circumstances like that. And I was telling people, that you have to look at this, not in some Pollyannish way that everything is for the best, that's silly, but that there is something to be gained out of even the worst kind of situation. So when I had my stroke, which was the worst thing that's ever happened to me personally, although I've had like my father passing away, would have to rank second to that. But you know, this that was like the worst thing that ever happened to me. But there have been things that were good about it. It kind of taught me certain things. It made me have a degree of humility that I never had. It made me have more empathy towards people who didn't have, who couldn't, who had physical disabilities or mental disabilities. It also taught me to slow down. It also taught me what it is I should appreciate in my life, you know, that I'm still alive and I'm still breathing, that I can write another book. So even in the worst circumstances, you can kind of get some kind of Some kind of positive value. And then to add to our here in the States, although the whole world had to, we had to deal with Donald Trump. And Donald Trump was like having a crazy uncle living in your little bedroom for four years, yelling and ranting. And you can't get him to shut up and you can't shove him in the closet. He's in your face. He's like, love him or hate him, you can't escape from him. And it was intense. You know, I happen not to have been. A great fan of his. That's putting it mildly, but I don't want to get political here. That's not our point. It's just that that kind of insecurity about America, about what's going on in our country, which we're still dealing with, and the pandemic, it was a rough, weird time, interesting time. I don't think I've I've never been through anything like that in my life, and my mother, God bless her, who's ninety four. She's she's you know she's been through the Great Depression, which was in some ways obviously worse. But to her, this was like the she never experienced anything quite like this either. So,
0: mm. yeah, there's that that tension. like uh, I had a mate. I wasn't at this house for last week. And it was almost a I heard of almost a punch on because it was around the forceful you know taking of vaccines. And then there's another. Uh, you know, family Christmas where where everyone's getting asked if I, you know, have you had the vax, and then obviously there's going to be one auntie or uncle who hasn't, and more tension there. So there's this this crazy tension going on. It seems right. like, uh, so you know, how, how how do we navigate this and sort of best deal with it as as people um, with all different you know different perspectives on the world.
2: Well, on, on the one hand, you want to be kind of empathetic. that people who have different viewpoints, particularly politically, and I have to learn to do that as well. You know, not everyone's going to have my own particular beliefs. I have to respect that. But when it comes to people's health, I'm sorry I draw the line. When you're more worried about what's maybe going into your body and what, you know, things that might happen, and you're not really caring about the hundreds of people you're coming in contact with every day, that you could be a secret carrier... Of, the, of COVID and be infecting people, and maybe even they're dying from it. That's just pure selfishness. So I have no, I have no empathy for people like that. Get the bloody vaccine, right? And don't be such a fragile little, little you know, uh, I forget the snowflake, as we call it here, where you're so worried about something going into your body, you're probably eating food that's got all sorts of chemicals in it. You're not thinking twice about that,
0: right? Probably all the eating... cocaine and all sorts of stuff, like the same people who <laughs> yeah. are with out the vaccine. Yeah, <laughs> right. oh, you yeah, you yeah. you
2: know, living in the twenty first century and all the pollution and all the stuff in our food and everything going on is far is far more powerful than any possible negative consequence from a vaccine, you know? So you know, be strong, be don't be so so weak, that you're so worried about. I mean, a lot of it is this kind of rebellious attitude where you don't want to do what the government is telling you to do. I understand that, I have a rebellious quality myself. And if that's the main motivation, I can understand that a little bit. But, you know, that's a kind of an adolescent viewpoint. You get over that you say, for the better, for the sake of my friends, my parents, my colleagues, people who are older, I'm gonna think of them And if for some reason this vaccine turns me into a chimpanzee, as some people worry about, well, that's great. I'll get to be a chimpanzee. What an amazing (laughs) experience that would be.
1: It would be different, that's for sure. Um, as a as a book podcast, we normally ask, I guess, what books have been most influential oh. on them. But we we asked you last time, and you mentioned uh, Machiavelli, um, von Clausewitz, Carlos Castaneda. Wow. Um, so we'll ask you we'll ask you a different question. Oh, thank um, you. I guess thank who are the who are the who are some of the more maybe the more modern uh, your your contemporaries? Who are the the modern authors or books that that uh, that you're really drawn to? Well,
2: Carlos Castaneda is fairly modern, at least for me, because I was growing up with those books. Um, Victor Frankel's book um, *Man's Search for Meaning*, which is written in the fifties. Okay, that's getting a little, uh, you know, meant a lot to me. There's an Italian writer who's a little more—I don't know—academic is the word—who um, I love a lot. Who just passed away two months ago, named Roberto Calasso, who I just love his books. He wrote a book called *The Ruin of Kosh*, which was I just think absolutely insanely brilliant. And then he has written a book um, called The Celestial Hunter that I read recently. He talks about, like, ancient, writes a lot about ancient Greece, which is a fascination of mine. And I'm u- using a lot of what he wrote in, in my new book on the sublime. Um, then there's some psychologists um, who, are, who are more contemporary, who, who I'm very into. As far as political writers and whatnot, nothing comes to mind i mean i know when i was writing the war book there's some brilliant writers about warfare that really ex- inspired me i found very exciting their names aren't coming to mind i'm sorry i'm i'm 62 years old my brain i can't even remember that you already interviewed me so i can plead i can plead you know kind of early alzheimer's or something your <laughs> senility. um so they're you know but um As far as like a real contemporary writer, I don't know. There are some too, and there's some really interesting. I know, like, I love the novelist Toni Morrison, always really loved her work, and I think her her work is pretty. She passed away fairly recently. I know I'm leaving somebody out, but I can't remember it.
1: (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. We get, we get, I like your guy's
2: book, even though I haven't read it. I'm sure your book is really (laughs) good.
1: We'll take that. I'm sorry.
2: I know there's something that's driving me crazy. It'll come to me maybe we, eventually.
0: We, we might sniff that uh, Robert Green point quote and we'll, we'll put it on the yeah. front cover. Okay, okay, <laughs> Robert okay, Green's okay. favorite contemporary book. Okay. Very, you have to really
2: snip quite a bit. Um, I know uh, Ryan Holiday's books are really good. Of course, I'm a little precious because I kind of trained him, so I'm being narcissistic again here. Oh, uh, nice. But there are other people. I don't know what my problem is. Sorry, it'll come to me. Well,
0: that's so good. Well, uh, as we're, we're wrapping it up, thank you so much, uh, Robert Green. We, as we said, we're, we're super, you know, enjoy your work and you've slapped us across the face a hundred times throughout all your books. And oh. for everyone listening right now, they're going to go out and buy the Daily Laws because there's going to be 366. <laughs> I guess they're not <laughs> all slaps. Probably, yeah. I'd say 50 slaps and then. Fifty pats on the back, and then all sorts of things. But something powerful uh, that's, each day. So that's a really good way uh, of putting so it. Much. Thank you. I'm going to use that
2: myself. Thank you. And hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, if you front. have me on again in a few years, I'm going to make a point of remembering. I'm going to write it down, and I'm going to remember it. And I'm going to have an am have an answer for contemporary writers that I like. I promise you. When
1: um, when can we expect the the new book? I know you've only just given well, us this new book. Well, um,
2: just please be patient because the problem that I have is with my stroke, I can't type. So I have to, I'm have. like somebody from the 14th century right now. I handwrite everything in a notebook, and then I rewrite it in a notebook. It's almost like a medieval text or something wow. with things in between and all sorts of pencil marks. And then finally, I have to dictate it to my computer because I can't type. And the dictation process on these computers is so wonky that it comes out like a monkey typed it or something. (laughs) And then I have to go in with one hand and edit it. And So it's slow. It's driving me crazy. But Okay, so to answer your question, probably optimistically two years, realistically like three years.
1: Hopefully we're all
2: alive by then. Still alive,
1: myself and not not chimpanzees. Yeah, no, No,
2: I think that'd be really interesting. (laughs) You know, there were were, people who actually claim it's going to change your DNA into a prime, well, we are primates, into a chimpanzee. (laughs) Well, I'd love that. That would be fantastic. Bring it on. There's a good lizard
0: conspiracy as well out there, I think. We turn into lizards, and Bill Gates apparently is already a lizard, so there's a few few interesting theories out there we cannot. Yeah, retrospectively, um, see how accurate they were. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
2: well, my new book I talk about um, the ancient ideal of becoming part animal, like in ancient Egypt, all the gods were part animal, part human, and how amazing that was, and the thought of being having like a human body and the head of an eagle. And you were actually, you know, I would love that if I could be become a lizard or a chimpanzee. I'd be the happiest person on the planet. So I'm going to go get a triple dose now.
1: (laughs) Hopefully, bring it on, just to accelerate the process. I love it. (laughs) That's so good, Robert Green. Thank you so much. It was fantastic. Well, thank you, guys. I really enjoyed
0: uh, it. Thank you very much.
1: I'm looking forward to speaking in 2024 about the sublime.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. Um we'd actually love to send you a copy of our, our book on Oh please.
1: You know?
2: Um so can you can you liaise with my assistant Jackson? He'll give you the address yep. to send that to. And I would love that though, please. And then I'll yeah, give an endorsement it. for your next book. Or you can take that snippet
0: awesome. if you want
1: <laughs> and run with it. No, that would be absolutely huge it'd for be, us. So we'll definitely
0: yeah. we'll definitely follow you up on that one. But yeah, but thank you, you so much hit, for your time. It,
1: they used, hit, hit was someone um, on the recording, Jonesy, make sure. The last occurs.
2: thing I'll say is, you know, the oh God, what is going on here? My computer <laughs> Siri, is back. going nuts. Siri, fuck off Siri. Shh. No. <laughs>
1: uh,
2: no, they they had you, – you've heard of Scientology, right? Oh, yeah. And so there was – years ago, the Los Angeles Times ran a series of articles exposing all the worst things about it. It's just a gruesome reading. And what Scientology did is they took snippets like half a sentence that seemed to be saying great things about the company and they had giant billboards all over Los Angeles with these half sentences that seemed to be saying how amazing Scientology was and then underneath LA Times and so you know that's kind of brilliant kind of diabolic brilliant advertising so you, I'm just not, I'm not comparing what you're doing there to that <laughs>